Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that could save a wretch like me. It's amazing what grace does. It's amazing how grace came. It's amazing how grace is realized. It's amazing how grace transforms our lives. And it's amazing that God would be so magnanimous, so charitable, so loving and passionate that He would give us grace. And that grace would do amazing things in our life. When we talk about grace taking hold of a life, when we talk about salvation being found by someone, sometimes we say, oh, they got saved, and that's a, that's a celebratory moment. But what does that mean? What is that, that, what is the gravity of that situation that someone found salvation? The Bible tells us that, that when we're saved, when we find salvation, when grace is realized and found, only through Jesus Christ. When it's made known to a person and they've trusted Him and placed their faith in Him, God saves them by justifying them. He makes them righteous. He places His justice, His righteousness. Although we did not have it and we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, Jesus gives that of Himself and places that on us. He makes us justified. But that's not all. There's not only forgiveness that's there, but there's also adoption. That we become people who are called by His name and, and known as children of God. We are adopted by Him. That the Bible tells us to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave them the right to be called children of God. Children not born of the blood or of the will, but of the, the direction of God. The grace of God. There's an adoption that's happened. So you're justified. You're, you're adopted. And not only that, but the Bible tells us that, that in that moment you are sanctified. You're made righteous, but you also have the Spirit of God living in you to continue making you righteous. That you continue growing. And, and, and if you get saved and you wonder, why haven't I got everything figured out? Why do I not serve God perfectly from the day one where I've placed my trust in Him, you can have hope that, that His righteousness never departs and God is continually shaping you. He has made you positionally righteous in His eyes that when He sees you, He sees the cleanliness and hope and holiness of Jesus. But He also keeps shaping us so that this position is matched up by our practices to where we begin looking more and more like that person that He has saved us through. And the Bible tells us not only is there justification, and not only is there adoption, not only is there sanctification, the Bible tells us there's regeneration. That we are given a new life in us. That while we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, God birthed us and, and made us born again. He gave us new life. Something that only He can do. That you are no longer a dead thing. You are no longer a sickly thing. You're a person that's a new creation in God. And lastly, there's the promise of glorification that God keeps and holds those who He has justified and adopted and regenerated and sanctified. And He keeps the promise of glorification that, that while we are here, there's a promise and an inheritance waiting for us up there that will never be corrupted. It will never be destroyed. It will never be taken away. That is amazing grace. That is mind-blowing, stupefying, heart-humbling, soul-awakening grace. 
And it is only found in Jesus. The one who reconciles those who were once lost but are now found. Those who were blind but now can see. Those who were once dead but now alive. It's only something He can do. Only He is able to reconcile. Only He is able to restore. And only He can bring that forgiveness that is so desperate our soul needs. But if we're honest, these are things I hope we already know, but we also know what it's like to sometimes get wonky. To have that place where we're distracted and we're off course. Or maybe, just maybe, we don't know this for our own life, but we've seen it happen in others' lives because we're far too holy for that to ever be a part of our own life, right? But we've seen other people get there. What about that person that, that went off the deep end? Now they're trying to get back in the ship. What should we do? What do, what do we do? Well, the Bible says their eternal security is already kept, but it doesn't mean we need to kick them off the, the ledge of the end and say, I hope you deal with that. God's got you, but I can't forgive you. That's not the hope. There must be a, a, a ministry that we carry in our life that shows what reconciliation looks like. Last week, as we are continuing in this series from First and Second Corinthians, we were looking at what Paul says to the church at Corinth in, in the letters of First and Second Corinthians, uh, two of four letters that he apparently wrote them in a period of time around A.D. 56, and he's showing them what this reconciliation ministry looks like. And last week we talked about if something's going to be reconciled, it obviously means to course correct which way things are going. And this is how correction must come about if it is God honoring it, if it is grace demonstrating, if it is, it is gospel directed. Obviously correction has to happen. But there's another process of that restoration. And it's not only correction, it's forgiveness. The ministry that we carry as people who have been given reconciliation with God, we pass this on to other people as well. We reconcile one another when we fall. We encourage one another to be pushed forward. So I want to ask you to stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word this week in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-17 through 17, and see what the Apostle wrote as he was inspired by Holy Spirit to put pen these words and God has preserved them for us, not only make an impact then, but available to us now. This will be in the Pew Bible in page pages uh, 1023 and 1024. By the way, just a side note, if you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, that you can read along and follow and, or have at your home, please take that as our gift to us. Uh, they're not just meant for uh, uh, pretty things in our pews. We want them to be in hearts and hands. But here we go. It will also be on the screen behind me. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to Him. I wrote for this purpose to test your character to see if you are obedient in 
everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ. So that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death. But to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? For do we do not market the Word of God for profit like so many? On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. Let's pray. Lord God, we have read a significant portion of Scripture today, and I pray you will help us to be clear and concise and at the same time just overwhelmed by how incredible you are and your gift of grace to us. But Lord, we would not know what and who you are except for you sharing that revelation to us. So today, we pray that same Spirit, you in here as the, the, the one who has invited us to be your guest, would speak and teach us all. Help me be but your servant today as we go through this text. That's your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And be seated. So I said before, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul has written. It's one of four letters that he wrote around A.D. 56, back and forth to the, the uh, church at Corinth, answering their questions. Obviously, in 1 Corinthians, we looked back a, a couple uh, weeks ago when we were there, Paul is dealing with a church that is so distracted, so divisive, so devoid of, of, of doctrinal um, integrity. Basically, they, they, don't, they, they know the Word, but they've kind of distanced themselves for it and kind of start following their own feelings and, 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 and emotions in, in certain scenarios. Needless to say, that was not the course that, that, that God had intended for this church. And Paul is is moved by the Holy Spirit to pen these words, to open their eyes, to wake up to who Jesus is, to see the, the amazing grace that he demonstrates. And that changes everything. Now, in that letter, Paul addresses several issues of, of sin and problems that were going on in the church. But here, this being what we think is the fourth letter that Paul had wrote, because he wrote, talks about writing a severer letter in between those first and second Corinthians, that letter we do not have. We see him dealing with restoration. What happens after a person is corrected? What happens after a person repents? What happens after a person returns to the Lord? Now this is not a foreign subject. This is a subject that, is, that the church has had to deal with for quite some time. Uh, through various times of persecution, when there would be those that would, um, that would fall away or make decisions that did not look as... Um, God honoring and Christ honoring, but they wanted to return to the church. Many times people would turn them away as if there was no second chance. They, they, that was it. They cast their lot, they made their bed, now they must lay in it. And that was, that was the only way. But Paul is showing what this restoration really looks like. And here he's writing about someone who was 
in a sinful situation and is returning back to the Lord and how the church must be about bringing forgiveness to this person, not only for their good, for that person's good, but for the church's good. And not only for the church's good, but for the world's good. That there would be something seen here that would make an impeccable, incredible, impactful difference in their world around them. Now, some people would ask, who is this person that has caused Paul pain? Who is this person that has caused him grief? Who is this person that has gone off the deep end? Well, ancient scholars tended to believe that this person that is being spoken of was the very same person that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A person we have no name of, but a person who is in a very personal, bad, deplorable relationship with his father's wife. The one that was sinful and incestual. Some people believe that's who he's speaking about. Others would disagree, saying it doesn't seem like it would be this short amount of time. We do not know who it was. Some people believe, modern scholars believe, that this was one of the people that was arguing for the legitimacy of Paul as an apostle, the legitimacy of his ministry, the legitimacy of his leadership, and had caused this divisive, well, I'm going to follow after Peter, or I'm going to follow after Apollos. And there was this disruption and division in the church And that was what had caused Paul personal pain. But nevertheless, we do not know who it is, and that's really not exactly the point. The point is the person was someone that had come to a realization that what he was doing or she was doing, apparently it's a he, um, he says he, um, had caused pain, was sinful, and had turned back to the Lord. And the church is asking, well, what do we do about this person? How do we handle this element and that's a good question for us today if we're going to see restoration in people's lives if we're going to demonstrate forgiveness what are some things that have to be involved what are some fundamentals if there were some necessities and requirements for corrections we talked about last week and paul demonstrated those about insisting on integrity being compelled by charity held by humility and tuning into the trajectory of 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 the glory of god there's also fundamentals when it comes to forgiveness at least true forgiveness you know what i mean when i say true forgiveness right you know when we have somebody says oh i'm sorry and we just don't want to get it big up into the conflict we don't want to do anything we just say oh it's okay you know and we really may be harboring some painful ill intent in the moment but we just don't want to dig it up we want to be cordial we want to look like good christians and so we just passively make a decision but it's not really true forgiveness we still hold on to it we'll drag out that moment pull it out of our jacket and say you remember this remember that doesn't mean we don't need to forget things it doesn't mean that that scenario but what are some things that are fundamentals we must look at I think one of the fundamentals to the true ministry of forgiveness that Paul shares with us and that the Holy Spirit places before us as a principle, a fundamental of forgiveness in the true ministry of forgiveness is that we need to understand when hindrances must be checked. We need to understand when ministries, hindrances must be checked. One of our biggest hindrances when it comes to the area of forgiveness is really not the person's sin. It's generally when it comes to our forgiveness of that person. It's our pride. 
It's our pride. And sometimes we have to check ourselves to see if our personal pride is getting in the way of God bringing restoration in someone else's life and us being encouraging, loving brothers and sisters in that process. We have to ask, is our personal pride preventing a scenario of health and hope in this moment? A picture of God's grace. Paul says, um, if anyone has caused pain, he is to pain some, some grief, but not so much to me, but some to, as some exaggerate, but to all of you. He's saying, um, really, my, my feelings about the matter are not the highest priority here. I want to stop right there. How many of us would say that our feelings about the matter are the highest priority? Maybe we don't say it boldly or vocally. But the way we walk, the way we act towards a brother or sister in Christ, it does. Our heart is telling of it. I have been guilty of this in my life and in my ministry. I've been guilty of this whenever I had leadership of churches that would just come out of nowhere and blast me for something that I ultimately thought, I don't really think they're mad at me. But I would hold a grudge against them because they were mad about something else and it came unglued onto me and then I would just be, I don't know if I could trust that person. I don't know if I could listen to their teaching. I don't know if I could listen to their criticism or their correction. I totally marked off any scenario of them playing a role in my life. What was I was really holding on to is they hurt my feelings. can't believe they did that. And my personal pride became a hindrance to forgiving them and seeing that in their life. And holding that deer instead of seeing what God could do through him. What Paul saw was the highest priority of this forgiveness aspect is that forgiveness brought about health and discipline and faith and practice and harmony and growth in the church. And harboring unforgiveness just began wedging out people from one another. What you would see in 1 Corinthians where people would say, I follow this person, I follow this person, was really pride saying, I don't really like that guy. They hurt my feelings. And that takes precedent. Here is the matter. Some people, not all people, I don't want to overgeneralize, but there are some people who take every little thing so personally. Every little constructive or critical word They take it so personally. And you can't tell me this is not a problem. I was sharing this week in a conversation how we live in a world where everyone is offensive and everyone is defensive. There is no middle ground. And whether we like it or not, those things that are in our culture, they make their way into the church. And what are we to do? We're not immune to these burdens. And because of this scenario that comes in and creeps in the church, it creeped in the church at Corinth, it is not immune for us to have not dealt with this at Eastgate. Because of these scenarios, whenever criticism, even if it's helpful or even given in a kind way with hopeful direction of correction, it is taken as a personal insult. Instead of health and hope and growth and harmony and faith and practice and discipline, what it ends up is a festering Pain. A thorn in the flesh. By the way, those hurt. It's amazing what a little bitty piece of something that's not much of anything can cause something to fester. I, 
I clipped my, see, I don't even know which one it is now. I finally got it out. I clipped my thumb the other day. And it was just a little bitty flake. I didn't even know it was in there, but I, my, my thumb started getting painful and, and stiff. And I, I was like not able to grab on the things. And I was like, well, I know I got a little cut there. And so I had to clean it out. And then I found this little small, I mean, just insignificant piece. But man, what it was causing the pain. But now it's out. I'm like, I even forgot which thumb it was. It prevents hope and health. Because there are such people that cannot handle a situation without making it all personal. These are the people that tend to disturb the true fellowship of the church, the true family. And it would be well for us to remember that criticism and advice most often, at least in the way that is godly, is offered not to hurt us, but to help us. And we must not take everything so self-servingly, so personal, that it removes us from being a benefit, removing us from being a blessing. How does this honor Christ? Jesus had every right, the only right, to take everything that we did as His people personally. Because as God, it was an offense to Him. And He took it personally. But He also emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant. Much more so. Should this be a reflection in the church that spreads the aroma of Christ. A fundamental of forgiveness is learning when hindrances must be checked. And one of the biggest is when we take everything so personally and we don't actually even think about the other person. The second fundamental is how holiness is meant to be the course he said this punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. What's, what you've done to discipline and bring about correction is enough. As a result, you should instead forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. He says, here's the thing. If you just keep pushing, you're going to push the person off course. The, the whole goal is that holiness might take root. That's the motive of church discipline. Paul's motive in this exercise was never to hurt someone. It was never just for vengeance sake to see that someone got their just desserts. It was ultimately for correction to take hold and restoration to take place. And that all of this would be done to the glory of God and for the good of that person. It was never so that they could just be utterly punished and destroyed, but that holiness would be seen and evident in the church and in that life. His aim was not to keep someone down, but to help someone out and up. And the judgment was not based on the flip-flop, ever-changing waves of judgment in a trend, but according to the Word of God. According to thus saith the Lord. According to that that which built up Christian love. If we think that church discipline and helping to critique others and correct others is only to give them a little flints of pain, and hurt them, then our goal is to hurt them more than to bring about holiness for them. And if that's the the problem, and holiness is not the course for our forgiveness, we will sometimes withdraw it. How do we help people see what transformation looks like? Granted, I know there are people that do vile things, horrible things, 
I'm not saying that if there's a Christian leader and he falls morally, that we're just to passively overlook it and, and say, well, just give him back the piece of leadership that he needs. There should be some time to help someone get back on the right path. But there should be a right way to help them get on that path. Not to push them out and cast them out forever. This is what it looks like. The Christian duty is not to render the sender, sinner as harmless as they can by submitting them into submission to where they don't even look like the person that God intended them to be, but to make that person a saint by pointing them towards and reflecting the kindness of Jesus that helps them see that He did what He did so that we would be made holy. Not so that we would just be passively covered by a forgiveness. Not so that we would just be pushed out and forever separated by Him, but that we would be drawn near and become like Him in holiness. That's what forgiveness looks like. A third fundamental is this. It's not only that, that we need to check when hindrances are there, or that we need to see how holiness is the course for the person, but we also need to ask, what hurts that cause? What hurts that hope? Paul saying, I urge you to reaffirm your love to Him. And I wrote for this purpose to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. If you're really going to see that what God does is not just transforming a few things, but everything, including how you forgive one another truly. Anyone you forgive, Paul says, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it's for your benefit in the presence of Christ. And when this happens, this is good so that we are not taken advantage of by Satan for not significant of his schemes. In other words, the punishment is not to drive someone to utter despair to where they are beyond repair. It's never to attempt to pummel them like a mortar. It's that kind of treatment that would also push people towards Satan, but it would also, if we're not careful, make us agents. Not of grace, but of disgrace. Over severity may actually drive someone from the church so far away and it's fellowship, while sympathy and empathy often can draw them in. A people that says, I understand. And if you're seeking redemption, if you're seeking restoration in the Lord, I want to be there to walk alongside of you. Yes, it may look messy. Yes, it may test the limits of our patience. But it is God honoring because it provides rescue for the soul in need. As they see the hope of glory that is found in Christ more than they see the behavior of the church. Hopefully in the behavior of the church they see the love of Christ. It's sad whenever I have conversations with people that once went to church Maybe they were very devoted. I'm not excusing the mistakes that they made. I'm not excusing the sin and the way they rebelled. That is not my job. That is between them and the Lord. But sometimes due to the behavior of the church or the punishment and brutality of the church, the, the, the firm stance that is taken so hard. And I'm not saying we should be soft on sin. That's not what I'm saying. That which rebels against the Lord must be dealt with. That which is not holy must be dealt with. We can't be passive there. 
But we also can't be so pushing away as if we are ones without sin casting the first stones. We can't be ones who are passive about sin, but we can't be so pummeling of others that it pushes them away from the amazing grace that is found in Jesus. Last year we celebrated 500 years since the the Reformation began and the birth of the Protestant church. One of the key figures in that was a man named Martin Luther. A man who was a theologian, who went to seminary, who became a Catholic priest and and, uh, first a monk, was actually driven towards the idea of hatred of God. In fact, in his writings, he said he could not even with hope pray the Lord's Prayer. Because the very words that begin, Our Father, could not get beyond it. And unfortunately, that was because his own father was so stern, was so cruel in his life, that the idea of God being anywhere paired into a vision of who his dad was, was, it was unrelatable. It could not be there. And he could not establish how, if God was like his father, there was any way he could ever find grace. He could ever find redemption. It wasn't until later when he was humbled by the beauty of reading the book of Romans and seeing that what God has done is salvation to all who believe. Not to all who who fit in a box of checking off all the marks and saying, well, they've earned this, but seeing that God gives something though we do not earn it. He saw grace and it transformed him rather than being pushed away by the grim terror that he had of those he had known. I pray that would never be said of us at Eastgate. That because of our behavior, because of our lack of compassion, realizing that all sin and fall short of the glory of God, that we would automatically just push someone out. May we also never be said of someone who takes for granted what God has called holiness either. But somewhere along the line, there's got to be a place that says we are serious about what God has said is our role when it comes to teaching, when it comes to loving, when it comes to serving, when it comes to faithfulness, when it comes to obedience. We are serious about that. But we also recognize the gravity of His grace that lends His love to those who are in their time of need. And if we can help them on that restoration process, we want to be about that. If they choose to walk away and be habitual and say, I choose to do this rather than be party to any of the grace of God, then we reluctantly say, I'm sorry that that's the way you choose, but we want to hold out hope and we will pray for you. We will still love you. We will still care for you and hold out hope that one day the Lord of glory will demonstrate His grace to you and you'll recognize and return and we'll welcome you. That is our hope. Because that's what forgiveness looks like. That's what Jesus has done for us. He did not come to earth to push us further into hell. We were already going that way. He came to earth to rescue us from the penalties of our own sin. And so when I look at these fundamentals, I see that 
We need to ask when hindrances must be checked. Is there something in me that is preventing that forgiveness that is not honoring to the glory of God or to the good of man? Is there, I need to ask and have the fundamental of, is holiness the course that I'm looking for in my own life, in the life of my church, in the life of this person? I need to ask, am I doing something to hurt that person and to cause them to go further away from God? Or am I doing something to bring about the hope? And ultimately, the fundamental, I need to remember that when it comes to forgiveness, this is why I'm not in charge of it. It's why Christ is the hero. That He does something that I could not do on my own motives. If this is the struggle and this is the natural way we tend to go, We need someone else to step in and be an intercessor for us. We need someone else to show grace and give us that grace-supplied, glory-filled gospel goodness that shows who He is. That's why Paul writes, but thanks be to God that I have had disappointments. I've had to look for people that were lost. I've had these moments. But thanks be to God who always leads us. He, He never fails in His leadership. He always leads us in Christ triumphal procession and through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place i love this picture of the triumph paul would many times when he would speak to the churches he would talk about the realities that they saw around them happening and, and use those as illustrations. When he gives the imagery of the armor of God, he uses the very aspects of the Roman centurion garb, something they would be able to clearly see in their day in the Roman culture. In the days of the Roman culture, there would be these events they would call a triumph or triumph. And it would be a moment where they would be marching in after a great, great victory. And I'm not talking about like a, a, a marginal victory, like a superior, overwhelming, there is no denying who won victory. And as they would process through the city, they would bring some of the spoils of war, the things that they had won, their trophies, and they would march them down the, the streets while people were beside watching. They would have musicians declaring what was going on. They would have priests that was a part of their religion, and they would be burning incense, going back and forth, waving it, and smoke filling the air. They would have the captors, those that remain live, walking and showing this is what happens when enemies rise up. And lastly, before the legions would come, they would have that general, that leader, who had won the victory. And he would be riding on his horse while the legions of soldiers behind him were just uttering, Triumph! 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 And in that moment, the whole city would be able to awaken. This is the power and authority held by this army. This is the victory for those who choose to follow along in its path. And I'm sorry, Helen, did I wake him up? Okay. Sorry. I'm scared of baby moms. I am. You don't want to wake the baby. But Paul says of Christ, those who follow Him are those who walk in that procession behind Him declaring that in Him is triumph. A triumph that overcomes our sin. A triumph that overcomes death. A triumph that restores the soul. And when we share the news of who He is as He marches before us, we're like those soldiers as the incense around us is burning and the smoke is filling the place. People are being pointed to the person in the crowd that is above all else. And we're saying in Him is triumph. In Him is triumph. 
And to some, that noise will sound and smell like death. Like how, how dare they speak that? But to others, it'll be the aroma of life. And we want to be in sincerity communicating this knowledge that what Christ alone can do brings amazing grace. It restores the soul. And we too, as His followers, as His legions of followers who know Him to be Father God, good and gracious, we live a life that says triumph. Not only in our words, but in our deeds. And in carrying this ministry of reconciliation. A ministry that corrects. A ministry that forgives. A ministry that points all to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, today as we come to the near close of this worship gathering, I pray that our heart and our focus is to point others towards You, but we must be careful not to say that, just be caught up in passivity. Yes, yeah, that's what we're doing. But to really, God, have You to search our heart to see if there be any wickedness in there and to lead us in a way is everlastingly good and holy in declaring the triumph that is found in Your name. Lord God, help us to be people that powerfully declare this. Not only on our lips, but with every aspect of our lives. That when it comes to that test of who we are, that it would be said of us as best as we can Without any reservations, we are seeking to be obedient in all things. Because you always go before it in triumph. Help us always follow after you. Lord God, measure our hearts today as we take time to respond and help us to be obedient to trust in you. Whatever way you may be leading, whatever restoration may need to take place, God, do what only you can do. Help us be a church that glorifies you, that recognizes amazing grace, and communicates the amazing goodness of the gospel. In Jesus' name.